This is One Ogden. I'm John Miles. The Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation was one of the only tribes to refuse a reservation from the U.S. government. And they were the victims of one of the largest Native American massacres in U.S. history. Brad Perry is the Tribal Council Vice Chairman, and Rios Pacheco is a child care and cultural analyst. You know, our Aboriginal territory, if you look at it on a map, it is basically from uh, point of the mountain, you know, at the end of the Salt Lake Valley, north. Um, and it goes all the way north until the Snake River in Idaho. So that's as far north as we go. Uh, we, we have a little bit in, in uh, eastern Colorado, uh, a little bit, no, western Colorado. Yeah, and a little bit in eastern Nevada. Um, our Aboriginal territory goes up into Jackson, uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and that's just Northwestern Band. Hmm. Um, you know, at the time of the treaties in 1868, we we ceded over 60 million at the Shoshone Nation as a whole ceded over 60 million acres uh, to the federal government, and we were about eight million acres of that. And at the time, they had a they had a drawn map that they just said, well, here's the northwesterns, here's the easterns, here's the Goshutes, here's the west east you know, westerns, and all that. And and today, you know, with technology, we've 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 created straight lines, you know. <laughs> so it's like, well, you follow I eighty, and it's like, well, yeah, we can't cross that line. But what are the services the tribe provides? Like, what does the tribe do for members? Our big our three biggest services is is healthcare, childcare. You know, kind of rolled up into that uh, education, housing, housing, oh, and yeah. housing. Yep, those are our three major programs. We and apply for grants, cultural resources, and cultural resources. We have program managers over those over those different things. Um, you know, we have tribal businesses that, that bring in funding that that we put towards education, we put towards healthcare and housing. We apply for grants all the time uh, to to meet the needs of our members, and so. We work a lot off grants, and uh, you know, with, with what Utah, the state of Utah schools are doing right now, doing tuition waivers. A lot of our students ended up at Utah State because it was free tuition, it was uh, free housing, and then we paid, you know, books and feeds. So we have a lot of undergrads from Utah State right now, hmm. um, and so we really focused on that. And our tribal elders are important to us, and they all need health care, they all need homes, and. Uh, those, those, that's kind of how we divide those things out. So, because all of your members are like kind of dual citizens, is that? I mean, most tribes, I mean, if not all, most of their people live on reservation. And so the reservation tribes, you know, really operate like a small town or a city or like the Navajos, they operate, uh, you know, like a state because of how large their area is. And so they have a state with different cities and, and things like that. We're we're a little unique in the fact that we don't have a a central community where we all live, and so we have to meet the needs of everybody. And so we try to let them know, hey, here are some things outside of the tribe you can apply for. But we try to take care of our members first, hmm. um, and then if they need outside help, we'll look for that with them. But yeah, we try to handle try to take all of our members as much as we can with with what we have yeah and so a lot of that is just kind of helping them navigate other like government services sure that kind of stuff interesting and then what does like uh have you guys done anything with the 198 acres uh so our 
so we have that. Um, we we've cleaned up our cemetery. We've planted some trees and put some water on it to so the tribal members uh, can go back and and uh, see their ancestors. You know, a lot of the folks from that survived the Bear River massacre are buried there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just you know we have places for our members to go, and it made it a little bit more easy access. Uh, the rest of it, we're just, you know, uh, we're looking at different things to try and improve the land, you know, to help, wa- you know, get water to the Great Salt Lake, help the, the migratory bird patterns. You know, we have water there. We can develop wetlands, ponds, and different things. But oh, uh, that's cool. just haven't come to fruition yet, but that's that's the plan in the future. Yeah. I want to ask about the Bear River Massacre land. What's that? What's that? Oga? Bo Ogoy? Bo Ogoy. Yeah. So, yeah, Bo Ogoy is a... Is more of a spiritual term than uh-huh. a, like a loose translation. Okay. Uh, you know, to heal, to reconnect, those sorts of things. Um, for our marketing purposes or, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, when we write grants, we call it Wurogwa, hmm. um, Bear River. And that's the literal translation. And so okay. it, it's it's helped people understand, oh, okay. Wurogwa. Right. And that kind of stuff. So, is that up by Cache Valley? It's it's in way northern Cache Valley in Idaho. Okay. So just about five miles north of the town of Preston. Can you just kind of tell me the history of that land? Like what happened there? Uh, that land was a particular land that our people uh, used. Uh, they used that land because of the landscape of the land. Uh, it was a place that had uh, the healing waters, where the hot springs would run next to uh, all the clear water springs. So back then, we all had uh, all kinds of plants that grew even through the winter because of the hot springs. Oh. And you could bring in horses, and there would be green grass that they could have right there in the area where the hot springs were. Uh, the people could go and bathe and could go do, uh, it's like a medical uh, rejuvenating source for uh, our Indian people then and even today it's used the same way and also it's a place that uh, was one that uh, people would know how to get there because it was a convenient place between all the Shoshone bands that would come from uh, like today where we have uh, Nevada and Idaho and even up uh, in Wyoming and some that um, would come from the Great Salt Lake area up. And it was an area that had a lot of waterfowl in it and a lot of fish. So it was an area of uh, almost like what you would say, um, well, you use the term loosely, a grocery store, Uh because you had all the food sources. You also had... uh, because of the food sources, the animals, you could make tools out of those. You can make weapons out of the animal parts. So they would use that place to make those things that we, they would uh, be able to use in the summertime. Mm-hmm. So in the wintertime, it's not a stagnant place. It's an active place. Yeah. <clears throat> and then they would uh, be able to gather their people and uh, be able to tell what areas they went to pick different types of foods, pick uh, harvest different type of animals where uh, they might do some trading with people that were coming into the valley. So it was more of an information place, but also a place to gather your family. And the 
reason they picked that was because there was uh, <clears throat> bluffs on that place that you had to come down into the bluff to a valley that was covered with uh, anywhere from 15 foot to 20 foot high willows that would enclose the camp. So if you came down the valley, you almost couldn't see the camp wow. un unless you uh, seen it in the morning or in the evening when the smoke was coming up. And then it was so close to the water <clears throat> that they didn't need to go outside to bring water in. It was right there. Mm. So people used that place because of the hot springs and because of the fresh water resources. And <clears throat> that was the important place of that valley was because of the water. Yeah. And because of when you have water, you have all the plants, you have all the animals, you have all the waterfowl, and you have all the resources that you need to live through a harsh winter. And in Cache Valley at that time, the snow would go anywhere from, um, what, 5 to 15 feet deep. So they had an area where they could gather and uh, interact with their people, be able to bring people in to tell them of all the different places that they came from. And now as uh, they broke camp from that winter, they could go to those other places where it was explained to them and that campsite. Yeah. Well, and I love how you put that, that the hot spring kept it active in the winter because I never considered that. It makes it seem like a little paradise. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of geothermal tech, you know, uh, activity going on back then uh, before people started to bring in reservoirs and canals and change the water, which would change the temperature. Um, and so a lot of the ground where, well, most of the ground where we camped was was always free of snow and your teepee was just warmed or your or your wickiup was just warmed you know, from, the, from the ground up. And it was a large, large area of hot spring, not just the one that you go there see today. There were many potholes and many areas. And so it's just one of the things that has changed over time. But, hmm. yeah, as you described it, you know, as Rios described it as well, a, a kind of a winter paradise. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason why it was so important, not just to the Indian people, but through the trappers that came, was because of that fresh water. They had an abundant source of beaver mm -hmm. and abundant sources of uh, animal fur, uh, bearing fur that they could get in that valley, Cache Valley. It was... Uh, full of resources in that valley. Hmm. So that's why it was kind of a, a hidden prized valley. Yeah. Especially from the people that came in to start settling that area. Yeah. So when did the massacre occur at Bear River? January 29th of 1863. And it was like one of the biggest massacres of Native Americans, is that? Yeah, it, it actually is the largest killing... Uh, largest massacre in United States history in the, you know, basically the lower 48 mm. in the continental United States. And, uh, you know, uh, we, our oral history always had said, you know, more than 400 people had died there. The Army report was like 224, 225. Uh, eyewitnesses from, uh, from the town in Franklin counted it at 368 but admitted well, we didn't go look in the water, we didn't go look here, and they didn't know how many people died of wounds afterwards. And so there was a doctor um, that had a journal, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Hans Jasperson. Hans Jasperson, thanks you. Yeah. 
had went through and counted and got in the water and was counting and he got up to 492 mm. and so the, wow. his his journal kind of fit with our oral history of we lost 90 you know 90 percent of our people i'm curious about that part is is most of the history of the tribe passed down through oral history yes there's not like many written documents or anything you know dating back to these times mid 1800s no we we didn't start learning how to write until the 1900s mm. but uh, what helped us a lot today to uh, learn more of the things that happened during that time was the journals that the people that were settling that area kept yeah and a lot of it was because of uh, how the mormon church uh, taught their members how to keep uh, journals of places that they were settling mm-hmm. so because we had the interaction with those uh, new people coming in, they would write sometimes detailed information that now when we are able to uh, research that out, that it helps us understand how close that relationship was, but also how much of the life there was more um, like a community, friendship community, even though we were all just wanderers going back and forth, but yet we would stop there and they would uh, assist us in some things. We would also assist them in in some things that they may need. So that way, um, even after the battle, they were able to help our children to survive and help the old people that got injured and wounded. They would help them survive so that they can continue their life. Mm. So... When uh, new people come in, no matter where you are, you always have an interaction with them. You're always showing people how to continue in their life. And that's what we're learning a little more from those uh, families that kept those journals that help us understand how much we are so much alike. And have you guys acquired that land now? Yeah. Uh, We purchased... Um, the the site and some of that riparian corridor there in 2018. So we own about 400 acres in the area. Um, the local farmer who had had it for you know that land changed hands a bunch of times over the, since 1870, and uh, the local landowner there was just like, hey, do you guys want? We know we know it's important to you. Do you guys want to buy it? And so we were able to, to purchase that with funding that we had been saving um, from businesses and different things. Hmm. And, like, because when you guys took over the land, then uh, from what I saw from that, that video on, I think, PBS it was, mm-hmm. you know, the the river was all dirty. Like, you guys basically restored that land, right? We're, yeah, that's what we're in the process of doing. So, you know, as Rios was explaining this winter paradise, you know, and, and then you see it as you saw it, you know, on the video, it's like, that don't look like a paradise at all. <laughs> yeah, it was all um, overgrown and like the water's brown. Yep. And so it, it was totally different before, you know, agriculture. Um, those people there were dairy farmers and, you know, raised corn and, and those sorts of things in that area. And so they had to change the landscape. It was amazing what they did with irrigation. It was amazing how they created these things out of out of the area landscape of what it used to be. And so now all we're doing is just saying, okay, you guys did that. Now it's our turn to take it back in time. Mm-hmm. So they took, um, it, it, at the time, it, 
before the massacre, it was called Beaver Creek. It's now been called, since the massacre, it's been called Battle Creek. And uh, that's where we were had camped. That was the fresh water source that Rios had talked about. And they channelized it for irrigation. Well, mm. if you do that and you don't have any meanders and you just keep, you know, you keep uh, sidewalls sloughing in and cattle and, and different things, yeah, you get pretty brown, murky, unusable water. Um, and so we just looked at it and said, well, let's just put it back as it looked, you know, prior to 1863, mm-hmm. uh, trying to find those river meanders, trying to find those creek meanders and replant the native vegetation there. That place is overgrown with invasive species, Russian olive, coyote willow, thistles. I mean, just, just everything you can imagine. And so right now we've, we've removed, um, about half of the Russian olives that we need to. We've got another couple of hundred thousand trees to go. Um, we've planted about 10,000 trees over top of where those Russian olives were so we can not have any of that regrowth but have natural regrowth with our plants. And this 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 next year we will be creating those meanders. Um, so hopefully in 2025 we can release that water back into its natural state and it will start cleaning itself. Mm. And so that's, yeah, we're doing a full ecological restoration of, of that area. And is that now a space that your members have to go, you know, enjoy and all of that? Yeah. Yeah. And then you guys have more plans to expand out there. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, if, uh, you know, other land opportunities come up, we'll, we'll certainly be interested. Um, you know, uh, we, we would like to build uh, what we call an amphitheater into one of the sidewalls that's you know, further west of the massacre site, but you can oversee everything. And so people can come and listen, you know, like on January, every January 29th, we do a memorial. A lot of public show up because they want to pay their respects. And uh, we just, for years, we did it on the side of the road with 10, 15 people. Uh, now the more people learn about it, we're getting five, 600 people. Oh. And uh, cars lined up a mile either way on, on each side. And it's just not a safe place to... To, to have that many people and so we thought well if we can build this and heat the heat the seats with the geothermal water that's there um, then you know in 10 degrees in January people can sit there and be warm and listen to that and and also that would be a, like you said a gathering places for our people and then a place for us to invite other Shoshone nations if we want to do dances and, and different things again and so that's one thing we're looking at um, one thing that we're really looking we're looking forward to is is we would like to build an interpretive center in the area um, by where the amphitheater would be uh, to just kind of have an inside place where people can go and learn about not only our history but the history of the area that's a Bonneville Lake shoreline um, just 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 uh, a few miles northeast of theirs where Lake Bonneville broke and broke through and so a lot of history there and then the history of the people that came in after you know it's uh it's interesting to hear their stories and so we want to share that with everybody um unfortunately the the interpretive center takes donations and so we're just kind of we're kind of building on that Mm -hmm. like how does the community outside of you know your members how do they engage with you guys do you have like services events that kind of stuff we're starting to, you know, um, we held a we held a planting event uh, a few a couple of months ago, first week in November, 
where we had 8,500 different trees and plants that we needed to get into the ground before snow and, and all that kind of stuff. And so we opened it up to people that we knew and some organizations that had, had requested, hey, if there's ever a volunteer opportunity. And so we just slightly publicized that. We had about 400 people show up to help us put in those plants. And they did. Within four hours, we had everything planted. Hmm. Uh, we'll continue to do certain things like that. Um, as we grow and as we have space to do those sorts of things, you know, we can teach and, and lectures and those sorts of things and let the community learn from us about our tribe and not from a book that was written in 1930 by somebody who didn't really know us. Yeah. That's one thing a lot of people, they say Native Americans all the time. I notice you guys, you don't mind saying Indians. It doesn't seem to bother you. And like people used to call it the old Indian school up in Brigham City. Mm-hmm. Like, don't call it that. But that's like what it was called, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I guess that a lot of that stuff is not really, uh, I don't know, just not an issue to you. We don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the old Indian school up there, you know, uh, we didn't have, I don't think we had any members that ever went there. They were mostly Navajo kids. I was well, they, yeah, they started out as a boarding school, uh-huh. and then later they uh, opened it up to an uh, intertribal school. Yeah. And then I think we had a couple of the uh, young men that were going into electrici- electricians or um, auto body, uh-huh. and they had uh, almost like... Uh, a car dealership where they brought in all these tools and stuff. So it was oh. a high-grade uh, mm-hmm. learning center for uh, the students so they could go right into uh, applied uh, technology where they would be able to continue that education in uh, the fields that they might have chose. But oh. uh, they upgraded almost every two years at that school. Oh, really? And then finally I, when uh, the government uh, ran out of funds for that school, they closed it down and uh, uh-huh. they tried to uh, take all those things and put them in other uh, schools that were going on. They were um, involved with high school so they had uh, high school uh, uh, activities and uh, they were just uh, part of the community because they were involved with uh, when they um, back then they used to have key clubs and different types of clubs and they were involved with all that. Mm-hmm. So I got a really different impression when I was reading about it. I thought that, I mean, you hear like the U.S. government opens a boarding school for Native Americans and tries to teach them white customs. Like that doesn't sound necessarily super positive, you know. So uh, so my, my impression of it was that, you know, and, and you also you could see reports of people like, you know, talking about abuses there and stuff. So I thought it was maybe not looked upon positively, that school. No, they also had a place where... Uh, you know, young ladies would have uh, children there. Mm-hmm. So they had a place there for uh, their child uh, to take care of their children, how to take care of their children. Mm-hmm. And also they had, uh, they had uh, back then they were starting uh, the police uh, force on reservations. Mm-hmm. So they had a training center there at that uh, facility, at the school in that area, uh, when they brought it in as an uh, intertribal school. Oh, okay. So they were using that school to help... Uh, different tribes and different things that they would need on the reservation. And one of the <clears throat> police, uh, back then they call it a police academy, and that was an uh, intricate part of uh, Indian communities. They would have people from all over uh, the United States and Alaska come and be trained there. Hmm. 
So, you know, it, it was uh, something not like what you would hear the term bo- boarding school. Well, and that's an interesting thing. I think, okay, so you, you take somebody who's immigrated to this country and you want to help them, you know, you kind of assume that they want to integrate with the culture and stuff. But the Native American culture isn't like that. Like, trying to make Native Americans assimilate to the U.S. culture, like, feels wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah, so assimilation, you know, it was a really big thing uh, with the U.S. government for a long time, the, the assimilation program. I mean, they, they tried to force people to do that. Yeah. And that went horribly wrong. Yeah. Um, it actually led to the Indian Child Welfare Act, yeah. um, ICWA, which has been in the news where we're able to protect our children um, from just being taken and assimilated. Uh-huh. And so... Uh, it's hard. Um, I think it's harder for, um, you know, tribes that have large organizations on reservations, you know, because they've just kept their culture together and, and trying to take them out and throw them into a different place, you know, would, would be hard. Um, but like Rio said, a lot of there, there have been schools and, and different things. And, and nowadays, you know, uh, you know, the tribe put me through school at the University of Utah, and I had a 20-year career with the U.S. Department of Interior. When there was an opening to come back here to help, that was just a no-brainer. That's just what you do. And that's what a lot of tribal students do is they go out, they get trained, they have a little bit of a career, and then they come back and help the tribe mm. uh, to keep those sorts of things so you're not, you're not losing your people. We've had to assimilate more than any other tribe just because of our living situation. You know, We don't have that you know, houses right next to each other, community, you know, our own reservation with our own, you know, our own police force, our own school system, our own health care system. You know, we were in this community, so we've had to assimilate a little bit more. So our issue is trying to keep our culture alive with our kids and their kids and with our people. Um, whereas, like, as you just noted, it would be hard to, for, you know, uh, you know, say the, say a tribe on the reservation to to come out and and uh try and assimilate everybody at one time mm-hmm. you know uh, where they are in their group they have their culture they have their religion they have their school system they have those sorts of things that they all get to take care of which is wonderful um you know the fact that we didn't we didn't have that is is our problem is is trying to keep our culture alive and like um with so much of that stuff being passed down through oral history, is that is that like a big focus within the families in your tribe is, is you know, somehow trying to preserve those oral histories? Is there an effort along those lines? Yeah, to uh, preserve uh, the oral history um, was difficult because they had to learn a new language. Mm-hmm. They had to uh, give up some of the things. <clears throat> and today we find out that uh, we're doing the opposite we're trying to regain the language that they had to give up just to live in the society today. Yeah. But we're trying to be able to adjust that so we can do have both the language and the culture in the society we live in today. But also what is so important is the language that our uh, older people have left us will never go away because it comes back to us as we uh, are being able to teach the younger children. The younger children pick that language up because when you first talk, you talk with the language that is spoken to you first, and then you retain that language. But then as you grow older, you can uh, 
absorb different languages, but you always somehow are able to come back to that first language because of how our oral history, they are teaching it a little at a time, but repeating it so often that people will carry two or three phrases with them through their life. And when they get older, they remember those phrases. And by remembering those phrases, have the will to retain more. And that's why uh, being able to um, find ways to teach our people. And one of the ways now is through technology. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, a lot of tribes are using technology to to teach their uh, children how to speak the language. Uh, They're actually making... um, Uh, cartoons with the uh, figures talking in uh, their languages. They're making animals uh, talk to one another in the language. And by doing that, the kids are associated with those uh, visual things that they're able to pick up that language, and pretty soon that language just comes back to them Mm -hmm. because of how their people told those stories in small animal forms or picture forms. So you've seen them in your mind when they were talking. It's n- and now they're visualizing them and hearing the words coming from those animals. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a reverse process of bringing our language and bringing our culture back. Mm. Right, because that's... This pet peeve I have is that we we talk about the origins of man happening over in Africa. Well, or even here, you know, I've seen, you know, people were here 15,000 years ago. Some people say there's evidence of. I mean, this tribe could conceivably go back, you know, many thousand years, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, Rios and I had the opportunity to go out in the West Desert. Um, You know, Hill Air Force Base has, you know, land out there. um, And... Uh, that they utilize for training and different things and you know they've brought in many different archaeologists and people to hey we we don't want to destroy a site and recently they found footprints that date back 12,000 years old wow some of the oldest footprints in the united states um if not the oldest um i think there were some that were found at 15,000 years ago in white sands new mexico uh, recently as well. It's, I think, yeah, I think that's what I saw. Yeah, so the, so Rios and I were able to go out and look and, and see our ancestors. No know, kidding. There. Um, you know, we have a lot of stories going back, you know, in time. You know, my gra- my great-grandmother uh, used to tell me about the migration pattern from over to the coast of California down into the Gulf of Mexico and all the different roads that, that they would have and, uh, you know, just prior to contact it's these large swaths and a lot of those stories that get passed down um, do come from like Rio said those thousands of years old you just repeat it you repeat it you repeat it you repeat it you repeat it and each kid just grows up knowing that and so that's what we're trying to bring back you know we're, we're developing our own dictionary for the first time you know we're, we're getting people recorded um, we're finding documents where some people had just written things down uh, some of our people and then and trying to recreate that and, and tell these stories uh, again um, because you know uh, you know we have we have a tribal stories about the bear lake monster you know and how how many thousands of years does that go back uh-huh. you know we don't know but in an Indian storytelling it's as if it's happening right now 
so that's how my grandmother when she would tell me a story you know it may be a thousand years old but in the context it was well my gosh I can't believe that's happening right now you huh. know what I mean to huh. some of those things and so those stories are important to us huh. um, because it, it helps tell our history but in a time that in a way that we can relate it to us today you know mm-hmm. like I will not go swimming in the Bear Lake <laughs> and I, I never have after she told me those stories and so um that's like Rio said. That's what we really want to bring back, and it's it's challenging, uh, just because we're losing that generation that uh, that had that knowledge and had that language skill. Yeah. As a tribe, I'm guessing you do sort like like you guys would kind of encourage non-tribe members to come get involved and you know embrace your culture, celebrate your culture, that kind of stuff. Is that you know? Yeah, I mean we've done. Meet the Shoshone, what, at Ogden a few years ago, and we try to do events to where people can can come. Uh, Rios, was we were just talking earlier in our staff meeting, Rios and uh, Maria has gone to over nine schools in the last month or so, um, uh, elementary and junior highs, to, to talk to the kids and, and different things. I was, ap- I was able to be a part of uh, a, a virtual field trip that the – Utah Museum of Natural History did where schools could sign up and based on the age range fitted to an hour slot all over the state and so I had hundreds of schools um, that tuned in with large classrooms just to just to listen to me talk about the history of our tribe Mm. and uh, so we get a lot of those we're getting a lot of those those things now Uh, with the Great Salt Lake situation you know we get a lot of people asking what's the history that you guys have of the Salt Lake. And so we're able to share and meet, um, you know, one thing about tribal government is we have made a point to make sure we get along with the state government. You know, uh, we want to be able to rely on the governor and vice versa. We want, and the lieutenant governor, we think we have that sort of relationship with them is if they need anything from us, give us a call uh, and vice versa. And so we just have all these things that we're, we're trying to do within the community. Um, and, and speak at appropriate times and speak at appropriate places where it makes sense. You know, we don't have to be included in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they're, if they want to, if somebody wants to learn something, you know, and it's a big community event, we'd certainly like to go and do that. And we hold our own little community events when we can. Yeah, yeah. Well, most of it is to have the people recognize that there are people here before they came in. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people that, uh, uh, come in, uh, don't recognize the uh, people that were before them. Mm-hmm. They always think they're the first ones. They always think they're here because uh, they bring in something new. Mm-hmm. What uh, they don't really understand is uh, everything starts from a basic thing, and then it starts to grow from there. So <clears throat> while we were here, we were learning how to use the plants for medicines, we were learning how to use the plants to survive with the food sources that was here. Um, we were learning how to use the um, different um, animal parts to make our um, tools with. We were learning how to understand how to uh, keep the forest green by um, taking out all the dead, by burning out the forest so that new growth would come. So if we're um, looking for uh, plants to make our baskets out of, 
Sometimes you let those plants overgrow and there's no, no, no new growth and all of a sudden those plants become bigger and they're not useful to you. Mm. But if you burn them down, they're all young and come up and now they're useful to you. So you know how to provide the land with the, a way to grow uh, new plants in more abundancy. And uh, those are just basic things that you start from. And then as people come in, they start to work on those basic things, and then things start to improve. Mm. Because they're using some of those uh, plant medicine foods to uh, use in their medicines. So uh, it comes from all the indigenous people that uh, work with the plants, that know how to use those plants, but also know how to uh, manage the resources because we see the animals as being a resource to manage water because they form natural barriers so that they can have water run more pure down the stream. Mm. And they also use that water to hold it so that it doesn't overcome downstream. So we're looking at those things. And today now we're going back to those same things. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that we want to do on our uh, restoration is bring back the beaver ponds. So that way, <clears throat> it's a way to uh, help our water system and help, and help the plants so that there's a water base for them to start growing. And then when they open it up, now that has a abundant growth, but then now it goes down to another place, and then the beavers will work whatever they work yeah. and do, and then it starts another area again, where that place will flourish, and then it's a whole recycle again, and then you start over. Right. And uh, basically that's kind of what, when we go forward, we don't remember that recycling. Yeah. And uh, now we're trying to build it up man-made. Right, right. (laughs) It seems like environmentalists now are just now coming back around (laughs) to where... Yeah, you know, Native Americans have been for hundreds of years. Yeah, I mean, we get asked that a lot. You know, the the new term for a lot of these areas that people use are beaver dam analogs, where they go in and build, like like you said, fake beaver dams, and then reintroduce beaver, and then they'll start doing those. On our system, we've got a couple of three beavers that have come back that are building some dams, and we'll put in some analogs. But yeah, people ask us, we're like, well, if you wouldn't have messed with it in the first place, yada yada, hmm. um, it wouldn't be like that. But you know, they had to. They absolutely had to, um, to survive. And so, but yeah, they're going back to the same traditions now that we had, um, uh, prior, you know, Salt Lake wasn't discovered in 1847, you know, as the history books here in Utah say, (laughs) Uh, like Rios said, you know, we were here prior and we used things in a different way. And Uh and that's part of Rios's book there for the community to see, oh, this is how they use that. This is how they use that. Like you said, with the animals and the plants and different things, you just... You just kind of know Mother Nature will take care of itself if you stay, if you step out of the way. Right now, she needs a little bit of a push um, from us to get work done, and and uh, things can correct itself. So yeah. So are there, like, are there also elements of spirituality that get passed down through the tribe? Like, are there are there certain you know ideas about life and death and stuff that that tribe members tend to believe? Well, I guess the biggest one and. The one uh, the governor used is uh, you give thanks uh, to your creator for all the things he's created to you, but you also have to ask him to help you when um, those resources are depleting. 
So you rely on who made all these things. We rely on him every day. And, um, you know, people, when you start your life, you, you rely on him every day. Then pretty soon you forget. Right now, people forget. Who, who created all this? It's not us. We didn't create all these things. Who's to take care of it? It's us. But it was given to us to take care of. And that's where that uh, part comes in. And uh, people laugh at the governor when he says, will you pray? Mm. Let's all pray. And then pretty soon, what happened? Rain. Oh, yeah, rain. Something happened. Snow and rain. Because huh. he respected those things. Mm. And once you do that, you know, you don't know. Uh, it's just like a farmer when he, when he plants his seed. He's not just planting that seed and walking into his house and doing whatever. He plants that seed, and while he's walking, he's praying, saying, oh, I hope that crop is good. Uh, and he says, help me with that. Mm. And, you know, that's, uh, that's a universal thing. But to us, it's every day of our lives. Uh, <clears throat> people in our uh, culture are taught that if we don't respect those things, pretty soon we lose those things. Pretty soon you have to work harder to bring them back. But if you respect them, they will always be there. Mm -hmm. That's why when we're working on this land, mm -hmm. we respect the land first before we do anything to it. But we give thanks to the Creator for creating that. But there's been things that happened to it. Now we have to bring that back, but we can't do it without him. Mm. Helping not just us, but all the people that are there being able to contribute to that. And that's just part of everyone's life if we remember that basic part. Yeah, our project there is as much spiritual it is is as physical and natural and things like that because like like Rio said a lot of happy times for thousands of years one day of sadness that's you know lived with us for over 160 years now and uh to bring to bring back that balance will heal us spiritually and, and probably help heal those that that were uh, trapped there you know lost their lives there and so uh you know we try to do that and you know like he said you know when governor cox just you know he could he couldn't do any more you know uh, preaching to slow the flow or sign up for these things and save your water he just says i don't care who you believe in or what you do or if you meditate just pray for more water and and some of the you know some of the flack that he took over that from people just not understanding what rios just explained is we're connected spiritually and you know uh, just have a thought you know i mean whatever you believe even if you don't believe you can certainly think and uh, put that positive energy out there but that was something that resonated with us We're like yeah that's that's, that's what you do you mm -hmm. know like it didn't phase us yeah uh, in that way i mean i read it and thought that was a good comment whereas i had friends like oh i can't believe he's asking us to pray and i'm like well and then at the end of the snow year, people are like, well, maybe he had something, you know. <laughs> uh, but it was, yeah, it was. It, it's interesting when we get to ask those questions because you know our spirituality usually lines up with you know Christianity or Buddhism or or whatever. It's just like Rio said, we're all the same. Yeah, it really aligns with any kind of any other religious teaching. Yes. it just sort of enhances it and maybe uh, puts an emphasis on a person's responsibility. Personal yes. responsibility. 
Well, yeah, because, uh, you know, our conversation right now is talking about water. When we had that massacre, water is in two forms at that massacre. It was one where it was a solid state, where it was frozen. And then the next one was when it falls, it's uh, liquid. Uh, during that battle, <clears throat> our people prayed to stay alive. They used that spirituality to help them survive that tragic time. But at the end, when they knew all that could be done, they prayed for new life. And right after that battle, it started to snow again. What does snow bring when it melts? It brings new life. Mm. Everything regrows. So <clears throat> when we respect those things, that way we understand we don't end. We just continue. But we need to give that respect for how life starts. And it starts from our creator's creation story. Everything comes in order, one at a time. First you create something, then you have to put something on it, then you have to water it, then you have to bring different elements so that that way it is being able to withstand things, and then you bring the things on last. Mm. And that's how we see how things are, because that's how he created where we are today. But we have to respect that every day and be grateful for just living here and have life for tomorrow, mm -hmm. for tonight, yeah. and continue our lives. But also be grateful when our lives are ending so that someone else will carry on after us. How can people support the, the Cultural Center or, or you know everything you're trying to do up there? Um, like do you guys do donations that kind of stuff? Yeah, we do. We do take donations. We're work is our how's our donation site? Yeah, com slash wudaogwa. W U D A O G W A. You can log on there and and donate. Um, we'll have certain other things that come up like if somebody wants to sponsor a tree to for us to plant there. Um, you know, from out the world, you know, somebody can, can sponsor that sort of a thing and, and feel like they've contributed, hopefully. Um, That's cool. The, the volunteer days that we're trying to do, you know, it really helps us, you know, to, to, to meet our goal of, of planting 300,000 new native plants and trees. We've done 10,000 so far. and. Wow. Uh, you know, that sort of a help is, is what we're looking for. That's sort of a bunch of people come and help you clean up the area up there? Exactly. Same. Yeah. Yep. And do you guys find, like, artifacts out there? We do. We've, we've uh, found a few things that we've been out there. The most interesting piece that we've found so far is it's called Elko Chert. Uh, it's a type of rock from a quarry in, in Elko. It's a green chert that was a projectile. Um, and so it was an arrowhead. Uh, the uh, Dr. Cotting, who is at the University of Utah Anthropological Department, found it, and they have since dated it to be about 3,000 years old. Wow. And so just just something walking along, he looked down and oh, picked it up. I mean, just people have walked past it for 3,000 years. This is an arrowhead made out of stone that's out at Elko? Uh-huh. Wow. 
That's cool. Yeah, and so he knew he knew what it was when he picked it up. But you know, we gave it to the University of Utah to study, and when they're done with all of those sorts of things, they'll give us that back to us with all the information. But their preliminary findings is it's about three thousand years old. Wow. Uh, we've we've found other you know one thing that's really tied to Shoshones is obsidian. Uh, because of you know a lot of hot springs and all the volcanic activity up there that creates that that you know uh, glass you know that lava glass that's extremely sharp. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find shards and shards and shards of that all over. Like Rio said, you'd come and camp there, so you just have these big rocks that you just work into different tools. And we found plenty of shards and, and arrowheads like that in the area. So wow. And a lot of, and like Rio said, when we're when we're talking with the the people there that settled it um, after we left, and some of those earlier generations, uh, some of those older people, yeah, we used to go out and find arrowheads every day, and uh, so a lot of people have really accumulated a lot of things uh, when they lived there as well. So we know that there was always some activity there. Hmm. Wow. And are those cleanup days, uh, volunteer days, are they on your website too? Not yet, but they will be. Great. Yeah, we'll plan those sorts of things and, and get that going. Our major plea tra- tree planting is always the probably going to be the first weekend in November, you know, based on the weather at the time. Um, it's The ground's dry. It's, it's, it's a good time to plant. It's easy to, it's easy to manage a large group. Yeah. Um, whereas throughout the year, it's just wet because of the irrigation and, and the other work that we're doing. So Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate it. No, I really appreciate you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, I want to say thank you to Brad and Rios for the interview and to Maria Munker for setting it up. Rios has published this awesome book. It's called Shoshone Plants of Antelope Island. It helps you identify various plants, and it teaches you their traditional uses, including medicine or food or ceremonies or survival. Its illustrations make it really easy to identify the plants. Plus, it's a coloring book, and you can find it online or out at the Northwestern Band Shoshone offices out on Commerce Way. And uh, have a great week.